A glance at a map of the solar system will tell you that the planet Mercury is not that far from Earth, a mere 48 million miles on average, or just a little farther than Mars. Yet only two planetary missions have ever been sent to investigate the first rock from the Sun, and it took the last probe almost seven years to get into orbit, almost as long as it took Voyager 1 to reach Uranus, more than 30 times farther away. One reason why there have been so few missions and why they take so long is because it's incredibly hard to get to Mercury, not to mention everything involved in trying to operate in orbit once you're there. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and today on the Physics Central podcast, we're going on a trip to the innermost planet in our solar system. This is the story of a mission impossible that became possible through the quick thinking of a few savvy engineers, some fancy orbital mechanics, and a little thing called the gravity assist. When I was a lad watching Star Trek, and they're an orbit better planet, and, and and somebody would say, Captain, the orbit's unstable, we're going to crash into the planet. I was thinking, rubbish, once you're in orbit, it's stable. But it's not true. They were right on Star Trek. Orbits tend to be unstable. David Rothery is the UK lead scientist on the Mercury Imaging X-ray Spectrometer, an instrument that will soon be making the trip to Mercury on board the European Space Agency's BepiColombo mission, slated to launch in 2016. BepiColombo will bring the total spacecraft count to three for Mercury, following Mariner 10, which passed by the planet in the 70s, and Messenger, which has been in orbit since 2011 and will end its mission with a bang, literally, this coming March. It may seem easy enough to traverse the space between us and Mercury, but to collect useful data while you're there, you've got to thread the needle, fighting the sun's gravity to find the perfect trajectory. We've gotten better at it with every attempt, and the science returns have grown by leaps and bounds. But just a few decades ago, getting even one spacecraft there seemed utterly impossible. The issue is to get to Mercury, you're falling towards the sun, so you're accelerating all the time. And if you've fallen in all the way from the Earth, you're traveling far too fast to match velocities with Mercury, unless you're carrying an unfeasible amount of rocket fuel, retro rockets, to slow yourself down. So really, it's pretty easy to get to Mercury. It's just really hard not to keep going. What was needed was a way to slow down without spending an enormous amount of fuel, and the solution came in the form of the first-ever interplanetary gravity assist. In the early 1960s, the idea that a spacecraft could gain or lose orbital energy by passing close to a planet was not widely accepted, largely because the math involved in calculating the gravitational attraction between more than two objects is really complicated, and computers were just making their debut. In 1961, Michael Minovich, a summer intern at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, came up with a practical numerical solution to the restricted three-body problem. And he realized that a spacecraft and the planet perturbing its orbit actually exchange energy as a result of their gravitational interaction. This energy exchange opened up the possibility of getting a probe to arrive at Mercury traveling at a reasonable speed. It just has to swing by Venus first. Launching in 1973, that's exactly what Mariner 10 did. 
And thanks to another engineer's timely suggestion, NASA got more for its money than it originally intended by taking advantage of orbital resonances. A resonance is what happens when two objects orbiting the sun, say a spacecraft and a planet, have related periods of revolution. That means that every so often, in a regular pattern, they'll end up in the same part of their orbit at the same time, like dance partners whirling together and apart in time to the beat. Mariner 10 actually had three flybys of Mercury. It was only meant to have one until somebody pointed out, hang on, if you're going to swim past Venus to get to Mercury, which you need to do to have a trajectory that will get you to Mercury and get there not going so fast that you whiz by without time to see anything, you're going to swim by Venus. You can arrange it so that you then put yourself into an orbit around the Sun that takes twice as long to go around the Sun as Mercury does. So once you've flown past Mercury, you carry on, go around the Sun once, come back to where you were, and there will be Mercury again. So you put yourself into a two-to-one orbital resonance with Mercury about the Sun. So you get two. In fact, if your spacecraft lives long enough, you get three flybys for the price of one. And it was worth it. Those extra two flybys added a lot to our first encounter with the innermost planet. Mariner 10 returned the first close-up pictures of Mercury's surface, which is covered in craters, enigmatic smooth planes, and huge tectonic features, a product of the planet's ongoing contraction as it cools over time. The mission also revealed a surprising fact. Mercury has a magnetic field, a strong one. And despite its small size, Mercury is the only other terrestrial planet in our solar system thought to have an active dynamo. And it was a chap called Giuseppe Colombo, an Italian astronautical engineer that suggested this to, to NASA. And if that name sounds familiar, it should. He's the guy that gave his name to the mission I'm involved in, Beppe Colombo. That's right, Giuseppe, or Beppe Colombo, was a renowned Italian engineer, and his suggestion in 1970 that Mariner 10 might be able to rendezvous with Mercury multiple times paid off big time for NASA. The next step would be to get a spacecraft to actually orbit Mercury, and that's no small feat. The Sun is six million times more massive than Mercury, and it's close. One year on Mercury only takes 88 Earth days. It's one thing to slow down enough to pass by the planet with enough time to study it. It's another thing entirely to leave a heliocentric orbit and circle Mercury instead. Achieving orbit required another innovation in trajectory design, this time from JPL engineer Chen Wan Yen. What Chen Wan worked out was an insight equivalent in magnitude to what Giuseppe Colombo came out with, the repeated flybys. And what Chen Wan said was, well, what you do is you... Um, you get a gravitational assist from Venus, one or two gravity assists from Venus, to send you in the right direction at the right speed to begin with. And the first time you fly past Mercury, you are in a three to two, shall we say, orbital resonance with Mercury, which means that Mercury is making three orbits around the Sun for every two orbits that you make. But as you pass Mercury, you use Mercury's gravity to just change your velocity to put yourself into a four to three resonance with Mercury. The next time you approach Mercury, you swing past Mercury to put yourself into a five to four resonance with Mercury. And if you need to, you do it again and put yourself in a six to five resonance with Mercury. But eventually, your velocity difference to Mercury is sufficiently small that you can carry enough fuel to slow yourself down and be captured into orbit. In this scenario, you use multiple flybys of Mercury to gradually slow down the spacecraft and gently nudge it into orbit around the planet instead of the Sun.
This is the strategy that allowed the MESSENGER mission, which stands for Mercury Surface, Space Environment, Geochemistry, and Ranging, to achieve Mercury orbit in 2011 after three prior flybys, and it's also the approach that BepiColombo will follow when it's launched late next year. Rudiger Yane is a mission analyst at the European Space Operations Center, and he's in charge of planning BepiColombo's trajectory. When you look at the drawings, it looks complicated because there are a lot of um, orbits around the Sun with, with the flybys, two flybys at, at Venus and many flybys at Mercury. Bepi Colombo's path will start out with that initial gravity assist maneuver at Venus. Actually, two of them, because one's not quite enough to slow it down and send it toward Mercury. We have Narian 5, and this gives us escape velocity from the Earth of about 3 to 4 kilometers per second. This is good enough to reach Venus, halfway on the way to Mercury. So this is a good target to have a flyby. So we will use the gravity of Venus to um, get a kick from Venus. Basically, we would like to rotate our velocity vector by 90 degrees. But um, this is not possible. Um, we are too fast um, at Venus, so we get a small deflection. That's why we have to have two Venus flybys. Then, once it's pointed in the right direction and slowed down a bit, Bepi Colombo will head toward Mercury for a series of flybys there, just like Messenger. But not everything will be exactly the same this time around. Different to um, Messenger or Mariner and the older missions, we have an iron propulsion system. We compare it with um, the force of 300 ants, little tiny ants pulling a four-ton spacecraft. So it's a tiny, tiny change, but if they pull for weeks and months, you can achieve quite a um, uh, change in the trajectory. Solar electric propulsion takes advantage of the conservation of momentum. Electricity from solar power is used to ionize and accelerate a propellant, and the ejection of these atoms slowly but surely pushes the spacecraft along. Classical propulsion systems, like the one that got Messenger to Mercury, burn fuel over a few seconds at a time providing more discrete kicks to the spacecraft's path. Basically, they have a chemical engine which makes one uh, maneuver in deep space, and we spread this one maneuver out um, over uh, many months and maybe over various revolutions around the sun. In Bepi Colombo's case, the ion thrusters will be working against the motion of the vehicle, slowing it down as it falls toward the sun. And having this constant acceleration gives Yane a little more leeway to arrive at Mercury when the planet's in a favorable position. So we use our ion engines and we use the gravity of Mercury over another three, four years to gradually get the same velocity as Mercury. And um, after a total transfer time of 7.5 years, um, we are arriving at Mercury with basically zero velocity difference. And this means the gravity of Mercury is attracting the spacecraft and we are captured in a, in a Mercury orbit. After all that maneuvering, Bepi Colombo will finally reach its destination. But that doesn't mean the orbital gymnastics end there, as Messenger has made abundantly clear over the past few years. It turns out that Mercury's neighborhood is a pretty hostile place to be, and it takes a lot of hard work just to maintain your orbit once you get there. The spacecraft will never be at exactly the position which it should be, there is um, solar radiation pressure, which is pushing it away. There is the gravity, you don't know 100% precisely. So there are always some errors. Star Trek was right. Orbits aren't always stable. 
In Messenger's case, the effect has been to push the spacecraft toward the planet over time, and they've had to boost the near point, or periherm, several times. The other major concern, as you can imagine, is the heat. If you want to be over the day side of Mercury so you can see it, you've got the sun three times closer to you than it is at the Earth on one side of you, and this enormously hot planet the other side of you filling most of the sky. Your spacecraft has nowhere to lose heat, and most of your electronics need to be working at zero Celsius or sometimes a lot lower. So it's a real problem to operate a spacecraft in orbit about Mercury. Even so, sometimes the hardest things are the ones most worth doing. Thanks to Messenger, we now know a whole lot more about every aspect of Mercury's surface, interior, and space environment. And Bepi Colombo will be tricked out with even more instruments to pick up where Messenger leaves off. Exploring how Mercury got to be the way it is will help us understand how the rest of our solar system formed and evolved, and the conditions there provide a link to distant exoplanets orbiting as close and even closer to their stars. Bepi Colombo's trajectory has been decades in the making. From Minovich's gravity assist and Colombo's multiple encounters to Yen's orbital insight and everything learned from Messenger, it's got quite a legacy of overcoming technical challenges to uphold. Those who have been working on the mission logistics and instrument suite can see the end in sight, and they're looking forward to the day they can say that a third spacecraft has made it to Mercury. Oh, <laughs> I'm so excited. I'm so <laughs> curious and then and keen on getting it into orbit. It's uh, nice, all these calculations, but uh, reality is much more exciting than um, the math I'm doing. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Physics Central podcast. I'm Meg Rosenberg, and if you visit our website at physicsbuzz.physicscentral.com, you'll find a whole lot of additional information on Mercury, on the gravity assist maneuver, and the missions we discussed in the episode, Mariner 10, Messenger, and Bepi Colombo. 